Why do you believe what you believe and live the way you do? Well, it's easy to think that, you know, we sort of looked at this series of statements of fact that were there, and we affirm those things and believe those things. And I would say that you live the way you do, and I live the way I do. I believe what I believe largely as a result of the stories that you have heard and that have influenced you. Stories are powerful, and whether we always realize it or not, the stories that we hear as children and even as we grow into adulthood shape us beyond what we, what we think they do. We tend to think that stories are for kids, and certainly kids enjoy them quite a bit. Sometimes I think that we sort of think, well, I grow out of stories as I get older, but you know that's not true. We all love a good novel, a good movie. Stories continue to shape us, and they're important. What stories you listen to and enjoy are very, very significant for the way that you live and the, the things that you believe. One author described the importance of stories this way. Human life, then, can be seen as grounded in and constituted by the implicit or explicit stories which humans tell themselves and one another. And that's pretty broad-reaching. Stories are a basic constituent of human life. They are, in fact, one key element within the total construction of a worldview. So stories matter. Many of you have read maybe one of the greatest stories written over the last hundred or so years, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Or if you haven't read it, maybe you've seen the movie. If you haven't read it, there are sort of two, uh, two of the main characters, Frodo and Sam, are going on this long, incredibly difficult journey uh, with this difficult ending to the journey. And as they're going along, it's really tough, and they have this interaction that I want to read to you. Okay, Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam, trying to encourage him, says this to him. I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. They meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. And I love how he says that, the stories that stayed with you, the stories that continued to shape you. Today, Jesus is going to tell a story that I think will stick with you if you've never heard it before, and hopefully will stick with you even if you have heard it before. It's a remarkable little story, very simple, but it's very powerful. And in telling this story, Jesus is going to summarize what's going to happen to him and the importance of what's going to happen to him in the final week of his life. So turn to Mark chapter 12 if you're not there. Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. We're going to study this amazing little story today. As we do that, we're going to see four elements of the king's story Four elements of the king's story 
And my hope is that these elements will cause each of us to marvel at his plan of redemption. That's the goal. So four elements of the King's story, and through this story, I I hope and pray that each of us will marvel anew at the King's plan of redemption. Now, the first one of these is going to take the bulk of our time, so don't be concerned when we're 30 minutes into this and we're still on number one, okay? So, the first element of this story is the king's rejection. Look at verse one. And he began to speak to them. Well, if you're jumping into this, parachuting in, who is the them? Who's he talking to? Well, keep in mind what has just happened, what we studied last week and where we are. It's Tuesday of Passover week. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. Here, he is in the temple complex, this massive complex around the heart of the temple where people would go and animals would be sold. All of that is happening here. Lots of activity going on. And Jesus has entered into that place, and he's found a corner, and he's teaching, and he's instructing there, and he's been confronted by a delegation from the Sanhedrin. And they confronted him concerning his authority. Look back up at verse 27. Is describing the disciples. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? You remember this interaction, I hope, and how it basically ended with the religious leaders being embarrassed and unable to answer Jesus when he asked them a question in response. And so, That interaction takes place, and then we come right into chapter 12, and if we're not careful, we can think that the chapter break means we're in a completely different context. Well, actually, we're moments after that interaction has taken place. So let that color how you see this story that Jesus tells, and he speaks this right back to them after that first interaction. So he's talking here to the religious leaders And you can picture this crowd that has gathered is listening in to this story. But I want you to notice something about this story that you cannot miss to understand this. Look at verse 1. It says, And he began to speak to them in parables. Why is that significant? Well, some of you may not remember, but all the way back in Mark chapter 4, we talked about the importance of parables. A lot of times when we think of parables, we think of an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? Jesus used parables to try to make things clear. They were nifty illustrations that he would pull from the countryside or the culture around him, and he was doing that to try to help people to understand. Well, that understanding of parables actually couldn't be further from the truth. Let me show you from Mark chapter 4 what Jesus is really doing with parables, and then you'll begin to understand what he's doing in Mark chapter 12 here, okay? So Mark 4, I'll read it, it's on the screen. Jesus tells the parable of the soils and the seed, remember that? There's four different types of seed, or it's four different types of soil. The seed is thrown into the soil, and the disciples don't understand what's happening, so they come to Jesus and they ask him about it, and look what he says here. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Wait a minute. I thought parables were to help us understand better. Not entirely. 
so that, and he quotes here from Isaiah 6, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they turn and be forgiven. Those are powerful words. And what Jesus says parables are doing is they are making a dividing line. If the soil of your heart is good soil, then you will hear the parable and you will be given understanding and it will change you and shape you as stories do. But if you don't have good soil in your heart, then parables are a form of judgment. It makes the clay, the soil of your heart, harder because it's not abundantly clear what's being said. And so you reject it and you continue further in your unbelief. And so parables are a dividing line. And that's why he speaks this parable here in Mark chapter 12. Good soil means understanding. Hard soil in the heart means judgment. So this is a story of judgment told against these religious leaders. This is to bring further judgment on them and harden them. And you'll see why later, why he wants to do that. But for us this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have the soil that is receptive to his word, then this is a story not of judgment, but this is a story to shape you and form you and cause you to have the reaction we'll talk about later that you'll see down in verse 11. This story should be a great delight to us as we listen to it. Basically, this is a story about rejection. And that's why this entire first point takes so long as we go through the story. So let's jump into it. Verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Read verse 2 as well. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So this is kind of the setting of the story, okay? And this would have been very, very typical during this time. This was a business arrangement. A landowner plants a vineyard, builds this complex in order to harvest the grapes and the fruit there. And he puts tenants in charge of it. And most of the time, many times, he wouldn't even be there. He would go and conduct his business and run his affairs from someone else. But he leaves these tenants in charge. And then, over time, he sends someone to collect a portion of the profits. So they're able to grow the grapes. And he comes back and says, this is the percentage that belongs to me, and you may keep the rest. Now, grapes don't grow on a newly planted vineyard in one year. It takes up to or more than four years for this to happen. And so there's a lot of time that elapses here for the fruit to begin to develop. And verse 2 is talking about multiple years later, when the season came. It's not like he planted it in March and the grapes grew by October, probably four years later. So the tenants may have been feeling this false impression that now they had the stewardship and ownership of the vineyard, some authority over the vineyard. Now, as you read verses 1 and 2, and you see the setting of this parable, this story that Jesus is going to tell, it's not like he's pulling this out of nowhere. It's not like he looked out on the hillside and saw a vineyard and thought, ooh, that's a neat illustration. He's pulling this language of the vineyard from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 5, God 
is speaking of his judgment toward Israel, toward the nation of Israel, and he calls the nation of Israel his vineyard. Listen to Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Listen to how closely this language is to, or how close this language is to what we just read in Mark chapter 12. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then down in verse 7, we get a clear identification. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So in Isaiah, Israel is the vineyard. And Israel, the nation of Israel, is going to be judged for their lack of faithfulness. Okay? So that's what's happening in Isaiah. And you know the history. They go into exile for their sin because they didn't produce good fruit. They were wild grapes. They worshiped other gods. Jesus takes this metaphor of the vineyard and he sort of changes it a little bit in our reading. It's not the nation of Israel who's going to suffer judgment here. It's the tenants of the vineyard. It's those who are responsible for caring for and providing oversight over the vineyard here. So verses 1 and 2 give you sort of the historical background of what's going on. And at this point, as people are listening to this story, everything would have seemed normal. Yeah, we know, we know about this. This is what happens in Israel in the surrounding country. But then you get to verse 3, and things start to get a little crazy. Verse 3. When he sent the tenants in verse 2, they took him, or he sent his slave, his servant, verse 3, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the servant arrives expecting to get the portion that is owed to the landowner, and instead he gets beat up and sent away. One commentator described this as the tenants paying their rent in blows. What they're doing here is defying the landowner's claim, his rightful authoritative claim on his vineyard. They're challenging him to come and make them pay up. So after they beat the servant up, they send him on his way, and obviously he would have gone back to the owner of the vineyard and the owner would have heard about what had happened. And so the owner decides to send another servant. Look at verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Obviously, a, a blow to the head is serious, and it brings about great shame. And so they sent him away as well. Look at verse 5. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they kill. And so this landowner very patiently and very graciously sends his men to collect what is rightfully his. And over and over again, when he sends his men to them, they are beat up, they are treated shamefully, some of them are even killed. All of it is in defiance of the landowner They never give him what is rightfully owed to him. Now, if you're following this and you know that the vineyard is Israel, you probably have some idea of who the tenants are. 
And you probably know what Jesus is getting at here. You probably know about the history of the prophets of God. God had sent his prophets to the people of Israel and to the leadership of Israel over and over and over again, and they had been rejected and beat up, and some had been killed and had been treated shamefully throughout the Old Testament. Now, as you're reading this, some people would call this naive of both the tenants and the landowner. I mean, what, this is almost outrageous, this, this whole story here. What are they both doing here? The tenants aren't naive, they're rebellious. And the landowner is certainly not naive, as we'll see. He is patient and he is gracious. But this pictures the leadership of Israel continuing to reject God's authority over them. And the landowner continually sends his men and they continually get rejected. And that brings us to the climax of the story. This is in verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, you got to stop and think about this. Think, Think logically for a minute here. What farmer in his right mind sends his beloved son, to go to these tenants who've been beating up and killing his servants. Why would he do this? It's insane. Don't skip too quickly over that question. Let that question sit on you for a minute because that is the weighty question of this parable. Why would the landowner send his son? There's only one answer to that question. The great love of God for his people. That's why he sends his son. His son is the rightful heir, and they must listen to him. He carries the authority and the legal status of the father. Look how Jesus describes this son here. What does he call him? His beloved son. Two other times in the Gospel of Mark, that phrase has been used, beloved son. You know where they were? At the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration of Jesus. And so Jesus is clearly telling us and telling the crowd, I am the son in this parable. I am the son in this story. But look what happens in verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. That phrase, you know where else that phrase is used only one other time in Scripture? That phrase is used by Joseph's brothers when Joseph comes to them and they say that, come, let us kill him. That's to verse 7. And the inheritance will be ours. Look what they do in verse 8. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They take the son, they kill him, and they don't even dispose of his body properly. They dispose of his body with shame. They throw his body over the wall of the vineyard so the animals will feast on it. They don't even give him a proper, respectful burial. It's the ultimate iniquity that they've committed. 
And so if you're sitting there listening to this story, it has reached outrageous proportions if you're a Jew in the temple during that day. Verse 9 comes logically enough. Look at this. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He's going to bring swift and terrible judgment down on those who are caring for the vineyard, the corrupt tenants. They've rebelled. They've rejected him for too long. They've even looked his beloved son in the face and killed him. And so their positions of authority, their rank will be taken from them, and their entire system will come crashing down. And what's amazing about this parable is the tenants think they have won by killing the son. What they say here is the inheritance will be ours. They think that this is the path to victory, to securing their status. But this parable really can't go far enough to explain to us the glory of what's going to happen in the rejection of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus breaks away from the parable here in verse 10, and he begins to speak directly about what his rejection as the beloved son will mean. Look at verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Do you know where this is from? This is from Psalm 118. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. And if you remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, this is the very psalm that the people quoted from and proclaimed Jesus as the Davidic king when he entered the city on the donkey at the beginning of Passion Week. This psalm is a messianic psalm. It's describing a Davidic king entering a city after winning a great battle. But when you think about David and his entry into Jerusalem as the conquering king, you can't think about the life of David without thinking about his rejection at the hands of Saul. His rejection happened before his exaltation here. And that's the consistent pattern in Scripture. Rejection leads to exaltation, and that certainly is true of Jesus, and that's why he quotes this passage here. The stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone. So we'll talk about his exaltation in a minute here. But the second element of this story after his rejection is that his rejection leads to our salvation. Why does all of this matter for us? It's because this is the means by which God the Father brings about our salvation through the Son's rejection. Jesus has made it clear from this parable, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, but the pattern is that this rejection will lead to our salvation. Look at what it says at the end of verse 10 there. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? Well, in the New Testament, the cornerstone is the cornerstone of the temple, the new temple that God is building. 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, 
chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Because of Christ's rejection, we are given his spirit to dwell inside of us. Because of his rejection, you and I are adopted as sons into the family of God. Because of his rejection, we have full and open fellowship with God. This has been God's plan from the beginning. And it all happens for us and for our salvation because of the rejection and the death of Jesus Christ. And it's through that rejection and through our salvation that Jesus receives our third element of this story, his exaltation. He's rejected, we are given life, and he is exalted. Notice what it says again in verse 10. It's become the cornerstone, the preeminent piece of the new temple, the most important piece of this building that God is building. Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He receives the glory, the exaltation for obeying the Father. Philippians chapter 2 is very clear that Jesus will be exalted and every knee and every tongue will bow and declare him Lord because of the work that he does. His rejection, our salvation, his exaltation. And so the last question that we have to ask this morning and the last element of this story is our response. What does this do to us and in us as we see this story? How are we to respond to this? Well, there are two different responses outlined in verses 11 and verse 12. We'll focus on the one in verse 11 first. What's our response? This was the Lord's doing. Our response to this whole story here, the rejection, the salvation, his exaltation, our response is to recognize that this is not accidental. This whole thing, this whole story, this whole parable has been orchestrated and planned and ordained by God. He planned this rejection. And he planned that this rejection would be the means to our salvation. And this rejection would be the way that God builds his new temple and that he dwells among his people, the church. And so God's judgment on the religious leaders, even through the telling of this parable, his judgment on them is what brings about our salvation. Salvation of those who cling to him as the cornerstone. God is not reactionary. He chose the vineyard. He oversaw the history of Israel. He sent prophet after prophet. And then finally, purposefully, not in a naive manner, he sent his beloved son. And he did that so that you and I could receive salvation and so that his son could be exalted. Why go to all that trouble? Why send his beloved son? The only thing I can say is this verse, Romans 5.8. But God shows, demonstrates his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
How do you describe a love like that? I can't even put it into words. But look what he says in verse 11. This was the Lord's doing. And when we see that and what he has orchestrated, this is what we say, verse 11, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is magnificent to see this plan unfold over the centuries, over God's work with Israel, and to culminate in the sending of his beloved son. It is marvelous to us. It's breathtaking to see the scope and the execution of this plan and the love that is behind this plan. It should move us deeply. When he says here it's marvelous, he's speaking of something that is rich and that is powerful. I don't know if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia um, by C.S. Lewis, uh, but in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've not read it, um, there are four children who enter this magical world where animals talk and uh, a wicked queen rules, and in this in this world, there is a, a bold lion named Aslan, okay? And Aslan is intended to be a representation of Christ, okay, in the story. So in the, in the first book, the children go into this world, and they're not really aware of Aslan yet, but they're having this conversation with the beaver. I get it, right? It's, it's a children's book, but look past talking to the beaver, and the beaver begins to describe Aslan showing up on the scene. And I love this description. Listen to this. He says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And then listen to what Lewis says as he describes the children's reaction to that. Not all of it is positive. But, but this is what I'm talking about when I talk about it's marvelous in our eyes. And now, a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or beginning of summer. And I love that description. That's what it is to respond to Christ's work and say it is marvelous. It's magnificent. And for some people in this room, maybe it's been a long time since you've had that sort of reaction to Christ. Since you marveled at his story and what he's doing. Maybe you've never really had that sense of wonder. Maybe it's just something you do because you're supposed to. Maybe you're bored week after week in here. 
You don't sing very well. Maybe you don't sing at all. You can't wait to get over, get it over with. Get out of here and go grab lunch. Maybe Bible reading is something that you do because you know you're supposed to and you feel guilty if you don't. And I'm not, I'm not saying this morning that every single morning when you open God's word that you have to have tears of joy and have exaltation to the heavens over your Bible reading. So much of the time we read the Bible and read the Bible to engage the story and have it sink deeply into us. I know there are dry spells, but Jonathan Edwards is right. The heart of our religion is found in our affections. It's in our joys and our wants and our loves and our desires. And so if you find yourself, if I find myself never marveling at this story and the complexity of it and at the same time the simplicity of it and the beauty of the love that God has expressed through this story, if we find ourselves never marveling at this, never finding joy and delight like those children had in this story, then we need to examine some things. See what's going on in our heart. And get on your knees and ask God to turn the fire hose of his love on and to soak your dry and dusty heart. And I think that's the response to this story that believers should have. This is marvelous in our eyes. But unfortunately, there's another response as well. And this is found in verse 12. This is the religious leaders. And they were seeking to arrest him. Unbelievable. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. That's amazing. They have enough insight to be able to understand that this parable is told against them. They get it, in a sense. They know what Jesus is saying but they're not willing to let it change who they are. The soil of their hearts is hard, is rock solid. They hear, but they do not understand. It does not impact their affections. And I think you read this, verse 12, and you could say the religious leaders are here are beginning to act like the tenants in the story, aren't they? They're beginning to showcase those character qualities. And what's amazing even about that is them acting like the tenants leads them to act like the tenants and put to death the beloved son. And the death of the beloved son is the very means by which all of this happens and it becomes marvelous in our eyes. It's amazing. So what's the application for you and I here today? Not every sermon is a go-do-this sermon. This is a sermon... This is a passage that says, just marvel, just look and enjoy. And the only way to do that is to know this story, to read this story, and to enjoy this story. And then to let that bring you to the point of worship of the one who brought this story about. Let's pray. God, because we live in a broken world, our hearts are so often dry. Our affections are not what they need to be. They're not appropriate to the reality of what you have done. But I pray, even this morning, in my own life, in the lives of everyone here, I pray that you would ignite our affections because of what we see here. Help us to see your work 
the glory of Jesus Christ as marvelous in our eyes. I pray that you would give us soft and good soil so that the seed of the gospel will grow and fruit will be born. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this word from his, his gospel. It's in his name we pray. Amen.